If you would take out your Bibles and open them to the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Father, as we continue to work our way through the book of Ecclesiastes, a book, Father, that is filled with a great deal of insight and understanding about life and the way life is, a book, Lord, that often does not hold back in discussing the great evils of the world. We ask, Lord, that you grant us insight and, again, understanding. We pray, Lord, that our hearts and our lives, our minds will be informed by what your word says. We ask that we would think about these things often, that, Lord, it may permeate the way that we think, that, Father, it may inform the decisions that we make, that, Father, that what we do and the way that we do it, what we think about, even the way we think, well, Father, will be done in a way that pleases and honors you, And so, Father, we ask again, you bless your time and your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw, all, then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after win. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil a striving after the wind. In chapter 4, Solomon is going to be dealing with four areas of life that he observes that reinforces his view that everything is just meaningless. That, that as he looks at these things, they just reinforce this idea that he just can't wrap his mind around what is happening and what's going on. Those four things are oppression. The second thing is rivalry as a motivation for work. Then he will observe isolation in work and life, and then the problem of government. When it comes to the first one, oppression, oppression is a theme that is found throughout the Old Testament, from the oppression of the Israelites under the Egyptians to the prophetic voices critiquing oppression, to Israel's experience of oppression while they were in exile. In Proverbs 14.31, it reads, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Where he says that whoever oppresses the poor man insults him, that basically means that he's showing contempt. And what what you will see when you read through the word of God is that God is very much aware of how people treat people. He is very much aware of how you and I treat others, how others treat us. He's very much aware of the attitude behind the way people are treated. God takes note, and what we do understand is that the idea that someone is going to be able to mistreat another 
and not be held accountable for that is a great misnomer. Everyone is going to be held accountable for the way they have treated other individuals and for the attitudes they have. And here the Bible emphasizes that when it comes to oppressing those who are poor, that we're showing contempt. And of course, as the New Testament tells us, that when we do so, uh, if you treat someone poorly, you are treating God poorly. Not because that person is God, but because that person is made in the image of God. Proverbs 22.16 says, Whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or gives to the rich will only himself come to poverty. And then chapter 28 of Proverbs, it reads, A poor man who oppresses the poor is a beating rain that leaves no food. So all the bases are covered. We have those who oppress others uh, simply because they, uh, they have contempt for them. We have those who oppress the poor because they want to become wealthy or maybe give uh, um, uh, the, the means to those who are already wealthy. And then it even covers those who are themselves poor but oppress the poor as well. So here Koheleth merely describes the horror of what he has seen, and he moves to his own conclusions. Let me just give you a little bit of background. In the 3rd century B.C., Judea was part of the province of Syria and Phoenicia, and a Greek elite permeated the kingdom, and the leading families of Jerusalem were becoming integrated with the Greek elite. So in this context, what often happened was the wealthier classes oppressed the underclass, especially through the institution of debt slavery. In other words, it was like the loan sharking business, except it was whole families involved. You know, the loan shark, what, uh, if, you're, if you're unfamiliar with what they do, is you have individuals who have money and they're willing to lend the poor what they need to get by. But the interest rate is off the charts. In other words, these individuals would not be able to get help at a bank or at what we might call a legal institution. So the idea is, is you need 500 bucks, I'll give you 500 bucks. Next Friday, you owe me 750. That's a, that's, a, that's a great deal, and people will agree to that. But then let's say on that Friday, you don't have the 750. You may have the 500, you may have 700, doesn't matter, you owe me 750. So I'll take the 700 that you have, but next week we have, you know, the penalty and the interest on top of that, you owe me another 300. And it just, as you come up with it, it just doesn't end. And so this is what, what, the same thing they would do, except in those days what would happen is, is your neighbor might need money, you would help them out, they don't pay you back, well, the way that they would pay you back is they would then become, in, they would become indebted to you to where they would become your slave. And they would then have to work off whatever they owed. And of course, you were the one who determined how long that would be because you determined what their labor was worth, or maybe based on the way they did their labor or whatever it happens to be. And so this was kind of a, a common thing uh, that would take place. So whole families at times could end up being sold into slavery when they were unable to pay their debts. And then there would be times where, let's say that if I have in, uh, enslaved a family, because you're, you are now my property, I then come, someone else says, hey, I could use some more workers. And I go, hey, I got a whole family that's available. For the right price, you can have them. And so basically, he buys your debt. And he pays me, you are released, you go to them, and now you owe them. And of course, that stuff continues to perpetuate. So the abuse of economic and political power would lead to terrible acts of oppression of the underclass. And Goheleth points out the horror and the pain of this kind of oppression and its relentlessness. That's why he writes, And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. 
On the side of the oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. In fact, he goes on to use some very, very strong language because he ends up praising the dead. Remember, he says, And I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. Then he says, But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are, un- that are done under the sun. Now, when we think about the oppression of what he's looking at and, and, you know, this dramatic language that he is using when he sees this kind of oppression taking place and sees the cruelty that individuals are doing to others, we want to, we want to make sure that, that we don't think of oppression only in terms of what others are doing or maybe what other groups or maybe even governments are doing. We want to think of oppression in terms of maybe the oppression that we inflict on others and also acknowledging that we sometimes experience it as, as well. Oppression can come in all kinds of forms. If some kid's being bullied in school, he's suffering oppression. If some individual is uh, withholding some opportunity to you because of your race or because of your status or because of sta- uh, status or because of your class, then you are exper- experiencing oppression. There's all kinds of oppression. It's not always uh, to the point that, that your life is debilitated, but you are definitely affected, and you're affected in a very negative way. And then, of course, it is to the point to where the oppression can go on to where uh, there are very grave things that take place. I'm sure that you're very familiar with, we've talked about this in the past, uh, of individuals who are basically kidnapped or at times maybe purchased from their families or maybe their families promise that good work can be found for a daughter and she's taken away and they never see her again and she's sold from one man to another. This goes on all the time. There's a... This is a multi-billion dollar industry that takes place. Remember that when the Bricados were uh, still in Italy, one of the ministries they started, which still continues, is where they're trying to help uh, these girls that are basically enslaved get out of it. And of course, they, you know, they're having a difficult time getting out because you just can't say, okay, you're free. A, you might be shot by the individuals that own them. But even if you are able to free them, if they don't have a job, if they don't have skills where they can supply their needs, well, what do you think they're going to do? They're going to go back, you know, there's a cycle that, that continues, it just, it just doesn't end. And so, you know, they started this ministry trying to, to get these girls out, try to convince them they can make it, have a place for them to stay, train them, teach them how to do something, uh, help them start a business even, or help them get involved in a business so they can, you know, escape. And it's just one of those things where it's just maybe one at a time and it's slow going. It's slow going. It is not unusual for hundreds every day to die as a result of that. Job describes in, in terms this kind of thing that he sees, the kind of thing that he experienced himself. In Job chapter 3, we know that uh, Job had his, uh, all of his children die and all of his wealth was taken away in one catastrophic stroke after another that took place over the course of a very short period of time. And it says this, after this, Job opened his mouth and he cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish in which I was born and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. And so what Job is talking about here as he describes his grief is that what he's experiencing is so bad, 
It would have been better if he had never been born, even to experience all the great blessings he had experienced, but because what he's experiencing now is so horrible that he curses the day he was born. He sees nothing to celebrate. Later on, he says, Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and just expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breast that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest. Jeremiah, in chapter 20, says this, Cursed be the day on which I was born, the day when my mother bore me. Let it not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father. A son is born to you, making him very glad. Let that man be like the cities that the Lord overthrew without pity. Let him hear a cry in the morning and an alarm at noon, because he did not kill me in the womb. So my mother would have been my grave, and her womb forever great. Why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? Now it can be difficult for us to understand how bad things can be for an individual, for that person to wish they were never born. I don't know about you, but through my life, even on days when I had great pain, I never thought I wish I was never born. That's never crossed my mind. I think for most people, it's never crossed their mind. Because no matter how bad things are, no matter how much it hurts, we can think of things that are still wonderful that we've experienced. We, we may even think in terms that this is short-lived and you know we'll get through it. But this idea that the grief can be so pressing. In fact, sometimes we might even be tempted to think, that if somebody's thinking this way, that they're just feeling sorry for themselves. And they need to kind of grab themselves by their bootstraps and just kind of get on with life. You do need to remember that all that kind of thinking is very much a kind of thinking that comes from people who were born and raised in a wealthy nation. Because we are able to pretty much grab ourselves by our own bootstraps we can, you know, we still live in a place where if you want to work, you can find a job. It, it may not be some executive job, but if you want to work, you can find a job. We, we live in a place where needs are going to be met. So it's hard for us because we've never really experienced what it's like in really many countries where there, there is no resource. There is no welfare department. There is no unemployment check. There are no food stamps. There are no soup kitchens. There are no ministries giving out food. There is no inner city night shelter where you can go and sleep. It doesn't exist. It's not there. And the oppression that you might be experiencing doesn't end after 24 hours. It doesn't end after 24 days. It may not end after 24 months. It's just relentless. One after another. And if you are in a position where you're poor... You're going to be taken advantage of over and over. You have no recourse. And it's very hard to really wrap your mind around what that's like because that is so outside of our experience. But a large part of the world experiences that on a regular basis. And this is what Solomon is observing. This is what he is seeing. And then just kind of moving on, we'll we'll come back to this because we're going to tie some things together. But Solomon even talks about those who are working, but they, they work out of a sense of envy. He says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work 
come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. In other words, what he's saying is the only reason that these people perfected their skills and worked hard at their jobs was to compete with others and make more money than their neighbors. Now, it's not, we're not saying it's a bad thing to compete. That's not what he's talking about here. But the idea is, is that you want to do better than your neighbor so that you can somehow brag that you're better. It's to be above them. You know, there's a sense of, of meanness that is here. The purpose of their work was not to produce anything beautiful or to produce anything useful. It wasn't necessarily to help people. That might happen, but it was to stay ahead. It was to, maybe it was just to survive for the battle of bread. Now, we need to remember that God did not put this selfishness factor into human labor. That's the result of sin in the human heart. Sometimes people forget. They think that the fact that we have to work is because of sin. That's not true. Work was given to us by God. It, it, it's, work is to be fulfilling. To, it gives to us a sense of meaning. There's a lot of great things about work. But when man sinned, then man's work was cursed. That's part of the curse of sin. And so we need to, we need to remember that. So the, so the selfish factor in working is the result of sin. The idea of wanting to use the heads of others as a stepping stone is the result of, of sin in the human heart. We covet what others have. We not only want to have those things, but we want to go beyond and have even more. There's a covetousness. There's this competition and envy. They all go together. Competition, again, as I said, is not sinful of itself. When, but when being first is more important than being honest, there's going to be trouble. Proverbs 14, verse 30 says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. And you'd be amazed how many individuals who may not appear to be doing that, that's what drives them. That's, that's how they live. It, it, it bothers them that someone, that maybe even someone they know, has something. In fact, I was reading a book on, uh, um, on, on economics, and it was dealing with it from the psychological side of, of individuals and how they're affected by economic systems. And it was talking about individuals uh, in, our, in our country and, and the way that they think uh, when it comes to uh, work, their paycheck, someone else, and someone else's paycheck. And, they're ta- and, and they had kind of isolated a group of individuals who tend to be more on the lazy side. They got fired from jobs more often, or they would quit for no reason. Uh, those, th- that kind of a, a group. I don't know how they isolated them, but, but they got them isolated. Several hundred of them, and they had them take uh, some tests and different things to try to find out some attitudes. And this is what they, what they think. When they compare themselves to someone else who has more than they do. And, and in the survey, the other person who has more than you do is someone who works really, really hard. And so they say, what's the difference between you and them? Remember, these individuals who were normally fired because they were lazy. This is what they thought. Ah, that guy was lucky. Hard work had nothing to do with it as far as they were concerned. That individual was lucky. And as a result of that, if that individual looks at me funny, that individual thinks he's better than me, and they have no right to think they're better than me because they were lucky and I was unlucky. And, they, and, they, and then they were doing some more studies, and they found that even if the individual who was, let's say, fired because they stole, still viewed someone else as being lucky, and they were just unlucky. Just an absolute refusal to take any responsibility for their actions or, or for their attitudes, for the things they had done or for the things they hadn't done. And it talked about how these individuals had a lot of different types of issues and, and at times even health problems could be related back to this envy. 
So when we think about that and this idea of wanting to, to kind of better another individual out of spite, and then this oppression that Solomon has been talking about, when we take a step back and we look at what Solomon is getting at, there's some things that, that several things he's pointing to, but one of them would be this question that people ask themselves today. And, and the question is, is how am I doing? In other words, they become focused on the way that they feel. We, we go through the day with a sense of whether we are happy or sad or under pressure and stressed, tired or relaxed and carefree. Maybe it's none of those things, uh, none of those things because we're busy and we're focused on the task at hand at work, home, our relationship with the others, but we're always processing the world through our own eyes. We're always responding to what our circumstances are doing to us and how they make us feel. I tend to think that sometimes we think about these things way too much. I'm not, I'm not sure that it's healthy for us to always be thinking, am I happy or am I sad? I got stuff to do. I'll think about that later. Now, it's not that I want to be so focused on work that I am not thinking about the relationships that I have with other people. But I do think there's something to be said about being self-absorbed about every single thing that takes place and how it makes you feel uh, and, and, and what you're feeling at the moment. Sometimes in the midst of all of this, an individual may end up asking themselves, why am I working so hard? Is it really worth it? Of course, that may lead to, what am I living for? And those aren't bad questions, per se. It just depends on how we answer them. But as one thinks through all of this, the one thing he's always acutely aware of is himself. So one thing that we're always usually acutely aware of is ourselves. Remember that you are not what you think you are. You are what you think. There's a huge difference between those two things. So you ask yourself, whom do you spend most of your time thinking about? Well, I think Solomon thinks it's yourself. He tends to think, he th- he tends to think so. We fill our thoughts and plans with ourselves. We are constantly, as we constantly work out how to navigate the world in a way that would give us meaning and happiness, it's not, again, not necessarily a bad thing in and of itself, but it is often the source of our pain. We, ourselves, are often the source of our pain. And Solomon seems to find a way to change the question from how am I doing to maybe what it should be, which is how are we doing. Notice how he phrases the verse, how he uses the phrase in verse 6. He says, better is a handful of quietness. I think uh, the NIV uses the word tranquility. The New American Standard uses the word rest. And what is interesting is when he says that, is he doesn't say happier. Now, I'm not against happiness. I'm all for happiness. But he says here, better is a handful of quietness. Not, a, not, not being super happy. Because I think the word happy here would not be deep enough. He uses the word quietness. It's a word which means peace of mind, a calmness of soul. It's a word that's often used to capture the deep well-being of those who know their place in the world. They are content with the boundary lines of their life and are able to enjoy the fruits of their labors with a cheerful heart. Now when we say that, we're not saying that a person shouldn't have ambition. That's not what this is talking about. But, but even an individual who has great ambition, if he has this sense of quietness, he's an, under, he's an individual who understands their place in the world. They are content, again, with the boundary lines of life 
And as a result of that, they're able to enjoy the fruit of their labor, and they're able to do so cheerfully. One thing that's always important to note about the Bible is the Bible is very honest in its portrayal of life as it is. It presents the world as it really is. So if you take the first few verses of chapter 4 and you put them in a modern day circumstance, again, this idea that he sees all this oppression, and we would, I think the way that we would equate that, the sense we might get from that, was if you were to spend several days in a row watching consecutive episodes of 48 hours or 2020. If you were to do that, you would see stories on one murder after another. It would be stories on constant betrayal, manipulation with deadly consequences, torture of children, abandonment, and it goes on and on. It just never ends. If you allow yourself to dwell on such things, you will have a skewed outlook on life, or perhaps you may reach a high level of paranoia and remain in your home. I want you to turn to Mark chapter 7. I want you to notice one very small thing in this story. This is a little story about Jesus. I'm going to begin reading in verse 31. But I want to show you Jesus' response to something. Uh, His emotion is revealed here in this story. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 31. It says, Again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. Then they brought to him one who was deaf and had impediment in his speech. And they begged him to put his hand on him. And he took him aside from the multitude, and he put his fingers in his ears, And he spat and touched his tongue. Then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Epatha, that is, be open. Immediately his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was loosed and he spoke plainly. Then he commanded them that they should tell no one. But the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. The small thing that I wanted you to notice is this man is, is, uh, is deaf. He is, uh, has a, a very great difficulty being able to speak. And so when Jesus goes to heal him, it says in verse 34 that he looks up to heaven and he sighs. The word that's used there is a word which means to groan. It's a word that's used of, of someone who's in distress, someone who is experiencing affliction. It, it can be used even at times to grumble from impatience. And so here we see the emotion of Jesus where he comes, once again, he's confronted with just another individual who is experiencing the curse of sin. Remember that all diseases, all of the death, all the horrible things that take place, all of the bad things in in our lives take place because of the curse of sin. We attend funerals because of the curse of sin. We experience disease because of the curse of sin. You fall down and get hurt because of the curse of sin. Ecclesiastes knows how we feel that if we stare long enough and hard enough at the way the world really is, we might begin to feel pretty bad. Most of the time, we don't take a long, hard look at the world. And I think the reason why we don't is because we wouldn't be able to cope. In fact, the way we cope now is primarily through distraction. And we often pay good money for this in all of its forms. I wonder how it would be if we didn't have those distractions. Again, that's the way it is for many, many people throughout the world. They don't have anywhere to go to take their mind off of their present living conditions. Perhaps we might be like Koheleth, wishing we were never born and praising the dead for being dead. When thinking about this evil and the violence, I I was just 
trying to put together a collection of things that if you were to uh, think about them for a long time, it might be kind of depressing. I don't, I don't know if you remember this. There was a state senator. His name was Leland Yee from California. He was a huge gun control advocate. He was leading the way to get laws passed to get rid of guns. Well, in 2014, he was arrested for gun trafficking. And he was sentenced to uh, trafficking arms in 2016. Then, of course, we have the mass shootings. Name uh, name the, the city in the world where the most kidnappings happen and you might be blown away. More kidnappings happen in Mexico City than any other place in the world. And the second city leading the world in kidnappings is Phoenix, Arizona. I'm not in a hurry to move there. Don't want my family living there. But most of the time we would think that it was some other country, maybe in South America, but it's not. Then you think about this. Serial killers. A serial killer is typically a person who murders three or more people with the murders taking place over more than a month. They believe at this time there's 306 known serial killers in the United States. Less than, now I was looking at a list of them. Less than six of them were, were from before the 1900s. These, this list of 300, and these are 306 known serial killers. All the rest uh, are those who were named after 1901. A report from the New Yorker estimates that there are 2,000 serial killers currently working in the United States of America. Remember, that we came from the ones that we know about to now there's, when they look at different crimes and they're trying to figure out, well, they may not know who, they may not even have a suspect, but as they link these together, there's over, they believe that there's over 2,000 of them. That's why when I worked in the prison, I always felt safe. Because all of the criminals are wearing the same color clothes. You can identify them. If there's 2,000 serial killers out there, guess how they're dressed? They're not wearing orange or green jumpsuits. But anyway, according to an archivist and researcher, a guy named Thomas Hargrove, he tracks the habits and the the, um, uh, status of serial killers, and he does all this data analysis. In fact, He's been doing this for a long time. He's part of a group that's called uh, the Murder Accountability Project. I had no idea there was such a thing. But anyway, it's a nonprofit group that uh, I I guess they're putting together these algorithms, and I'm assuming it's to help police. I don't know why else you would be doing this. But this is uh, their current numbers. He says this. The number of classified serial killers in the United States since 1980 is 87. The number of active serial killers at any given time is 35. The number of serial killer suspects currently on the FBI most wanted list is 271. Based on recent FBI crime stats, there are approximately 15,000 murders every year, and that doesn't even count the very real murders of the unborn. If you were just to, to watch shows about murder and how it takes place in this country, you might start looking very suspiciously at your neighbors. You might start looking very suspiciously at the person in the car next to you. What we do know is this, and I believe the Bible is uh, very real about this, uh, very honest about this, and that is this. Sometimes, when we look at all these things, there's no answer. There's no answer. We can't fix everything. When we look at the broken, fallen world through a biblical lens, what we see is the world is a place where our neighbor can be condemned so long as we can be king. When one pursues wealth or gain because we think that's all there's going to be, others are going to get hurt. 
As believers, we can never just fold our arms and just say, well, that's just the way it is. Tough. What is interesting is the Bible not only explains the damage that the powerful can inflict on the weak, but also is concerned about the damage done to the oppressor and their acts of oppression. Deep in our hearts, for many, we want to be noticed. We want to be the focus of attention. And that desire is capable of driving all we do and the reason that we do it. Victor Hugo, some of you are familiar with him, he wrote a poem. And in this poem, envy and greed are brought together. And someone very powerful is going to grant them the opportunity to receive whatever they wish. Only one condition. That the other receives double the portion. So whatever greed asked for, envy gets double. Whatever envy asked for, greed gets double. So as you read through the poem, envy speaks. And envy says, I wish to be blind in one eye. Just think about it. We're often just like that. It really does bother us when certain individuals have success. If we can find a way to drag them down, it really does make us feel better. Victor Hugo also said, the wicked envy and hate, that is their way of admiring. Envy is a feeling of grudging admiration and a desire to have something that is possessed by another. Feelings of envy often do not stem from hating other people, but they do usually stem from the inferiority feelings you experience when you see someone else doing better than you. Envy has to do with feeling unhappy about the success of someone else or about what they have, and at the same time, secretly feeling inferior yourself. It results from remembering that we are no good or that we cannot do what he or she did. Again, you can see how this is very much centered on yourself and thinking about the way that you are feeling at the moment. So Koheleth has noticed that a great deal of work and toil take place, motivated by myself. But what about others? What do they need? When we stop and think about serving and loving our neighbor, it prevents two extremes, idle laziness and manic busyness. Because sometimes the way that we may engage in oppressing others is by not only taking advantage of them, maybe it's by not alleviating the oppression that they're feeling. And so we can avoid that, again, by being idle, or maybe we can do that by just being so busy we have no time to do anything else. In fact, I was thinking about this. One time I was, I know this may sound kind of weird, I was driving down the interstate. Uh, I think I was going to uh, uh, see my parents up in Virginia. And I'm driving down the road, and, and I needed to be there at a certain time. I think this was, I, I was going to do the funeral of my grandmother. And so we're, we're driving up I-95, and I was thinking, you know, the sad thing is, is that I'm, I'm in, I've got to be at, at my dad's place at a certain time, that if I see somebody on the side of the road with a flat tire, and they need my help, i got to do a funeral. So, and I thought, well, maybe what I should start doing is a habit. Maybe I should start leaving like an hour even earlier so that if somebody might need my help, I could help them. I think that would be a good idea because I, 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 how would you feel when you, you know, people say, oh, I feel conflicted. You know, it's like, hey, I've got to be here and, and this, they need help. And 
You know, because I also know this. I know someone else may stop to help them who doesn't have very good intentions. And so maybe, maybe it would be good if I was to stop and help them on their way. That might prevent someone else stopping and taking advantage of the situation. We must begin to examine what we think and what, we, what, and what or who we think about. When it comes to others, we need to make sure that we're not like envy and that we're wishing to be blind in one eye. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your grace in our life. And we thank you, Lord, for the, for the great deal of goodness that has come our way. Father, I don't know if anyone here has experienced a great amount of oppression. But Father, I think most of us, and maybe all of us, are grateful that we have not experienced a great deal of oppression. We thank you, Lord, that we live in a place where that is not as common as it is in other places. But even though that may be, Father, there have been times that perhaps we ourselves have oppressed others. Maybe we have sought to succeed, not because we really want to help others, but because, Father, we want somehow to spite another. We find ourselves, Father, at times becoming or maybe being the kind of individuals that we despise. Father, we pray that you would help us to take stock of ourselves, honest stock of ourselves. And Lord, that you would enable us to be able to clearly see what we are like and what we think about. We pray, Lord, that we would seek to place all of our thoughts under the word of God. That, Lord, that what we think about, that even if we do think about ourselves a lot, that, Father, we would do so in a way that really is in line with Scripture. We pray, Lord, that we would begin to think of others more often. That, that it would not be the question of how am I doing, but really how are we doing. Help us, Father, to recognize and to see that you've placed us here for a reason. In fact, Lord, you've actually placed us here for many reasons. You've placed us here, Father, to be a witness for Christ, to share, to share the gospel, but also, Father, to do good, to do good for others, to be kind, to be respectful, to be patient. We pray, Lord, you help us to do that. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to not become fearful when we become aware of the great deal of wrong that is in the world. We do pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes and help us to see how much oppression there is. Help us to see the, the, the greed and what it does to others. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be an agent used by you in the lives of others to bring relief. Father, we pray that you would help us also, through Christ, to find not just contentment, but the quietness that Solomon talked about. Now, Father, we may have a, a good understanding of who we are, that we may understand our place in the world, that we may understand our limits and what it is that we are to do and accomplish. Lord, I know that there may be some here this morning who don't have that sense of quietness. They, they don't know why they are here. They are discontent with everything in their life. I ask, Lord, that you would help them to come to realize that no matter what they seek, there is no thing, there is no relationship that's going to be able to bring to them that sense of contentment except one. And that's a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, that they would turn to Christ and they would believe the gospel, that they would seek forgiveness of sin and trust in him. 
Father, we thank you now again for your great patience with us. We do pray and ask you to help us to be as patient with others as you've been with us. We do thank you and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.